All right, let's get back into the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> uh, we got down to chapter 22. Brief survey of our summary of chapter 21. God says he set before us life and death, that we are to choose life. Same thing he told us back in Deuteronomy, something that he continually tells us throughout the Bible, that there is a decision that has to be made. Will we go one way or will we go the other way? What will we choose? <clears throat> and that God has set his face against our country and against the church for evil, and not just in the city, but also in the plain and the valley, that wherever you go, you cannot escape from what God is bringing down. He will send hunters and fishers and make sure that this earth is punished for its disobedience to him. We heard in the sermonette that God is very concerned about us obeying every word that proceeds out of his mouth. And the example was used of Saul not following through on something specific that God told him to do. And there are many specifics in the Bible. Some were mentioned, which are very, very important. Uh, and if we don't follow through and do them, we're going to be in trouble with God. That's just the way it is going to be. And we will be punished according to the fruit of our doings, says the eternal. All right, let's go to chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word. Now, I believe the church represents Judah today in the sense of the spiritual Jews. The physical Jews have been divorced, and all power was taken away from them by Christ and given to the church as he was leaving, given to the apostles, who then were instrumental in establishing the New Testament church. So when it speaks of the house of Judah as an end-time prophecy, it's speaking first to the spiritual Jew, secondly to the physical Jew. So here's what to say to them. <clears throat> Hear the word of the eternal, O king of Judah, that sit upon the throne of David, you and your servants and your people that enter in by these gates. So he addresses the leadership of the church, and in chapter 23, we'll find that he addresses that very specifically. Thus says the Lord, execute you judgment and righteousness. This is the crying need now in the church and in the nation, that we have correct, proper, loving, and proper judgment and righteousness, doing the things which are right, that God established as right. There is a dearth of that. And deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor. So there are those who are being spoiled. There are those who are being oppressed. And God tells us that we are to help deliver them. We have a job to do. We are not here to save our flea-bitten hides. We are here to do a job, and that is to provide a climate whereby those who are oppressed and spoiled can be delivered. There are those who have been oppressed and spoiled within the church, misused and abused, and certainly there are those in the world who are receiving the same treatment. They will not be delivered from their oppression until the millennium. But God is offering a way for his people, the spiritual Jews, to escape. So we need to take this personally as a body, as a group, and as individuals, that this is written to us. How else can you take it? Can you deny it and say, well, that just must mean 
the President and Congress and the governors and so on of the states. No, it's written to us. We are the spiritual Jews. We have been given more than anyone else, and therefore more is expected of us than anyone else. God has given his people the truth. No one else on earth has it except those who have been called out of this world. And now, those who are increasing in knowledge and truth are even fewer. So if God is giving us information, he expects us to use it to be properly judgmental and righteous and to deliver the oppressed and the spoiled from their oppressors. We have been given opportunity to present and to build a climate in which that might be done. That's the purpose for which God is beginning to gather people. As I have often said, I believe we're the prep crew. We're the ones who have come in advance to establish a beachhead. We're not here to save ourselves from nuclear attacks. We're not here to save ourselves from trouble that is coming. If that is our motivation, we have the wrong motivation. We need to repent of that and realize why God is calling us together. He's not called us to be selfish, in other words. Where does God promote selfishness? Where does God ever promote saving yourself? Does he not rather tell us, be willing to lose your life in Christ and in his people, and it will be saved eternally, or try to save your physical hide and lose eternal life. So saving our physical hide is not what we are about, and it's not why we're out in this desert. We are here to establish something that is in proper judgment and righteousness, and to be able to deliver those who are oppressed and spoiled by the church and churches. God has called us to a very high standard. And to do no wrong, that covers a wide gamut of human endeavor. To do no wrong. Not to wrong anybody. Not to cheat, not to steal, not to take from, not to cast in a wrong light or destroy the character or the reputation of. There are so many ways we can do people wrong. Do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow. Neither shed innocent blood in this place. We're to be very careful that we preserve and help one another spiritually, not destroy one another. And to be sure to take care of those who come and have need. That we make it important in our lives to take care of those who have need. Do whatever we can for them. Now, this is a general statement in one sense, and it could apply to a lot of people in a lot of places. But we have to take it personally within our circumstances, because it is up to every individual who reads this to interpret it in the light of what God is doing with him or her. It isn't for someone else. It's for you, wherever you are. So wherever we are, and it's here, we have to take it in the light of what God is doing with us. Now, is it wrong for me to say this applies to us? Somebody can read it somewhere else. 
and say it applies to them. If we believe God is working in our lives, then we have no choice but to apply it to ourselves. Now, some might say, well, you're being presumptuous and vain to say that's talking about you. Well, it may be talking about them, too. But for us, here and now, it's talking to us. We're reading it. Actually, not many people are. And if they do read it, for the most part, they're applying it to someone else, the physical nation. They're not taking it personal. Do we spoil and oppress one another by things we say and do to each other? Do we do each other wrong in the way we treat one another? Sometimes we do. Do we take proper care of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow? Sometimes we overlook them to our shame. We need to take special care to be sure they are taken care of. God mentions that over and over and over throughout the Bible. For if you do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house king sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. In other words, God will bless and he will continue to work with you. Speaking to the king of Judah, we're the spiritual Jews. If we do these things, God will continue to use us. Now, ancient Israel and ancient Judah did not continue to do these things. And God wound up divorcing them. And in the New Testament, when Christ was on this earth, telling them all authority and power had been taken from them and given to someone they didn't know, which was obviously at that time the apostles. So God has put the ball in our court as spiritual Jews, as the church. So he will continue to work through us and lead through us if we do these things. Verse 5, But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Eternal, that this house shall become a desolation. Now, which will it be? Will we take proper care of each other and love? Or will we misuse and abuse and assassinate the character of and so on and so forth? Will we ignore the needs of the widow and the orphan? Or will we take care of them? We have a chance to change some things. We have a chance to alter. You know, it's funny about human nature. If you change something, sometimes you're admitting that you were wrong in the first place. And human nature does not like to admit that it is wrong. So sometimes we play games in our minds. And if something is brought up that needs to be changed, we're afraid if we go out and change it, that someone will notice that we changed it and thereby know that we were wrong and we're accepting what was spoken to us and changing it. Now, if we're all seeking humility, we shouldn't have that problem with human nature. We should be willing to say, man, that's right, that must be me. Here's what I need to change. Then go out and do it. And if someone notices it, and maybe even comments about it, what, should that, what reaction should you spiritually have? Your correct spiritual reaction would be one of humility in saying, you know, I was wrong. I really needed to change that. 
But instead, our pride gets in our way. And we might not even change it for fear of admitting that we weren't doing something right. And we wouldn't want anyone to see it, so we'll continue to do that which is wrong. Now, if we were humble, we would be willing to accept, yes, that's talking about me. I need to make some changes. I will. And then if somebody notices it and says something, I'll take it as a compliment. Because what are we to be doing? Aren't we to be moving in the direction of righteousness? And if someone says, boy, you change that, instead of reacting by saying, or thinking that our pride is being damaged, we ought to be thankful that someone sees growth in us. The right spiritual attitude is to be thankful for those who see growth. Growth requires change. Whether God uses us or not, it's up to us. Will we make the changes we need to make? Why would God send more people to us if we're no different than anyone else? Why would he send people here if the climate is not one of proper judgment and righteousness and doing no wrong and taking care of one another? He can send them anywhere. We have to set a high standard. God has set the standard. We don't have to set it. We have to live up to the high standard God sets. And he will use us. If we don't, he won't use us. Verse 6, For thus says the Eternal unto the king's house of Judah, You are Gilead to me, and the head of Lebanon. Yet surely I will make you a wilderness and cities which are not inhabited. Now God's attitude toward us, toward the church today, is one of, I call you, I want to use you, I want to choose you. But he knows that out of many who are called, only few will be chosen. He knows not too many will respond correctly to Jeremiah's message, or the rest of the Bible for that matter. They just won't do it. You'll hear, but won't do anything about it. Forgetful hearers, not doers. What good is it what good is it to come and hear if you don't do? Actually, it's dangerous. Dangerous. Because if you hear, then you are responsible. You absolutely have no excuse if you hear it and don't do it. So, though you're Gilead and Lebanon, those are complementary terms and very positive. God says, I'll make you a wilderness and cities or churches which are not inhabited. And most of the churches are coming down. Only that which God takes with a small sprig from the top of the dead tree, as per Ezekiel 17, will survive and thrive. And we can be part of that if we react properly, or we'll become a wilderness like everyone else. It's up to us. So if you don't listen, I will prepare destroyers against you, every one with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. Cedars, trees, uh, women, and churches are used interchangeably. Zechariah 11 says specifically, three major trees, three ministries will be cut down in one month. And many nations shall pass by this city, and they shall say every man to his neighbor, Wherefore has the Eternal done this to this great city? Everybody in the church at some time or another has questions. Why has God done this to this church? Why has worldwide become what it is? 
or isn't. We all question that. Why was Sakach put in charge? Or did, why did he take charge if he wasn't put in? Why did he do what he did? Ezekiel 17 answers that in the parable and the riddle, along with the rest of the prophecies. He did it because of Laodiceanism and half-heartedness. Then they shall answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the eternal, their God. We did not live up to the commitment we made at baptism, and this has happened. And they worshipped other gods, but idols ahead of God, and they can be many in our society today. I've gone over that many, many times. The TV can be an idol. Movies can be an idol. Wrong kinds of reading, wrong kinds of things on the Internet. Uh, wealth. Homes. There are many, many things that could be idols. Our own self-image. Self is the commonest God that we have putting ourselves and our comforts ahead of the eternal God and his purposes. That's the biggest, most common idol there is. Weep you not for the dead, neither bemoan him, but weep sore for him that goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. Those who die, in that sense, will be better off than those who live and suffer captivity, deprivation, and trouble in life. For thus says the eternal touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah's father, which went forth out of this place, he shall not return here anymore. Now, these are specific prophecies about specific kings, yes. But these are also end-time prophecies. So they have to do with the leadership of the church and churches and the nation here at the end as well. So even though it may be a specific prophecy which did occur in that time in Jeremiah's day, it also applies today to whatever leaders there are, whoever is king of Judah or whoever is the minister or the priest or whatever term you want to use. But he shall die in the place where they have led him captive and shall see this land no more. Leaders today will die in the tribulation. Probably... Ninety percent. Woe to him that builds his house by unrighteousness, his life, his spiritual house, allows unrighteousness in there. No, you can build a physical house, and you can use bad materials, improper materials, and maybe the house won't stand. Maybe it'll have problems. A spiritual house can be used built with inferior materials and it will be torn down. Didn't Christ say not to build certain ways? If you build upon sand, it can be washed away. If you build on something solid, it will stay. Woe to him that builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him not for his work. In other words, takes advantage of other people. Now, I don't think that means that we can't help each other here as neighbors, do things for each other, volunteer our services, and so on. But through life, some people are givers and some are takers. Some will let you work on their place, but they won't work on yours. 
Some stay out of it entirely. Don't get involved with other people. But we are involved with other people. And we need to help one another. On the other hand, we need to be sure we do not mistreat, mis- mis- or misuse and abuse, and let things get out of hand. Where we're always the receiver and never the giver. So whether you're paying someone wages, or whether you're trading labor, or whether you're just helping uh, each other, uh, try to keep it in balance. Serve and be served. Sometimes we have our vanity and our ego, which says, I'm independent, and I don't need help. But we need to get rid of that vanity, too. At the same time, we need to get rid of our selfishness and be sure we help others. We're here to share, to give, to help and not to misuse and abuse and get it out of balance and out of whack. That says, I will build me a wide house in large chambers and cut him out windows and it is uh, paneled with cedar and painted with fine, bright colors and good paint. In other words, mine will be the best. We must be careful of that. Shall you reign because you closet yourself in cedar? <laughs> Does it make you better than anyone else because your house is lined with cedar instead of drywall? Maybe, you know, or whatever. No, it doesn't make you any better. Uh, it just means you use cedar. Somebody else used something else. Did not your father eat and drink and do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him? Would, isn't it better to do justice and proper judgments than to try to make ourselves look important or more impressive or better than others? Shall you reign because you closet yourself in cedar? God tells us we had to leave our fine homes, our lands, our relatives, our friends, and come and build in the temple. And I think most, at least here, have been willing to do that. Some of us left some very fine homes to come here in the desert and to provide a place for people to come when God begins to draw them. If we do our part, I believe he will do that. If we don't do our part, he'll do it somewhere else. But we have the knowledge, and if you have the knowledge, you're responsible for it. So I'm not saying we're more important than anyone else, but he did show us, give us the knowledge. Now, I guess I have the biggest house here. Uh, I don't know that it's fancy. Frank Lloyd Wright would not have built it like I did. Uh, our uh, pipe dream or our culvert or whatever you want to call it. But it's bigger than most. That was not necessarily by design, but I had some leftover arches and ordered a few more, so we we arched it. But I gave up a 5,000-square-foot home with beautiful logs on a lake in Alaska for the sake of getting back into God's work. To come here, we gave up a nice cabin way up on the side of the mountain in the pine trees with deer and elk in the yard and bears playing on the deck. And we loved it there. Compared to what we have here, it was fine physical surroundings. So, maybe our can is bigger than your can. Uh, You know, that was not necessarily by design. It just happened to be the arches were that wide. And I was thinking of getting a Use mobile home like most have done. So I don't guess, maybe I'm being a little defensive here in reading this, but we certainly gave up better and what we liked better to come here to do what we are doing. 
Now, I'm not saying that in regret. I'm happy to be here. Believe me. I want to be here. I want to devote my life to serving and making opportunity for others. That's what we came here to do, not to save our hides. In some respects, where we were in Colorado without God's intervention might be a safer place to have been than here will be. There weren't very many people around, and there were deer in the yard that we could eat. Now we've got goats in the yard that we can eat when the time comes, I guess. But uh, what I'm saying, I think, is can be echoed by everyone here. You know, I can stand here and tell you my story, but each of you has a story, too. And you gave up homes and lands, even mates in a case or two, to come and do what God said to do. I believe that we are on the right track in doing that. Haggai tells us, why are you living in your fine homes when there's a temple to build? And he says, people will come from far and wide when the time comes to build the temple. They'll have to give up their homes wherever they are, be it Australia or England or somewhere in the USA or Malaysia. They'll give them up and come to work in the temple of God. That's what he's called us to do. To be strong, to be of good courage, to fear not, and to work. We didn't come here just to save ourselves. We came here to work. To not be afraid, but to move forward in faith and good courage and to work. Now, I'm going to present you tonight, after the Bible study, we have a community meeting. I'm going to present you with a list I made of a long, well, it's only one page, single space, of things that just came into my mind that need to be done here. A to-do list, if you will. And I made a copy for everyone. So, we're getting a little more organized. So that not a few do all the work, but everybody knows what needs to be done. And I'm sure we can add a lot of things to the list beyond what I wrote down. We'll all know what needs to be done, and you can look at it and figure out how you might do part of it. And we can all work to get the job done that we're to do here. We're here to build a town, a village, that is to be conceived and operated in righteousness and prepare it so that others might come so that they would be drawn to it. So we have to be willing to sacrifice. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to present our bodies as a living sacrifice for the sake of others who might come later. If we're not willing to make that sacrifice, at some point we will be gone. That's just the way it is. We will either fulfill God's purposes or he will purge us out. It will happen. So we're not better because we might closet ourselves in cedar. And most of us here, I think, have been willing to give up our equivalent of cedar, whatever it might be, and come to work and to serve and to present ourselves as a sacrifice. So we're not here just to live and hopefully have God's umbrella of peace when others are in trouble. We came here to work and to serve. That's why we're here. We're not here to do that. We better change our attitude, or we won't remain here. God will see to that. Verse 16, he judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, says the eternal? God will judge the cause of the poor and the needy. 
Do we make the same judgment God does? Do we take care of them? There are a lot of spiritually needy. There are a lot physically who are needy. How can we help? Well, we can live the right example. We can be a light to the world. And we can make ourselves righteous. And God will use us then, if we do that, to help others. He will do that. If we do our part. Wasn't it that the poor and needy might know him and that we might know him? But your eyes and your heart are not but for your covetousness and for for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. That is a microcosm of our society today. Dog eat dog. Get what you can. Do as you please. Enjoy your life and be selfish. That's what generally our society is designed to produce. And we followed that way too much in the church. So God says, get it right. Do it right. Therefore, thus says the eternal concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister, they shall not lament for him, saying, O Lord, or ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Because the leadership did not lead in righteousness, in the proper direction, God says they'll be cut up like a jackass, carried out, and dumped. Donkey being a big enough animal, you don't carry the whole thing out, so it is drawn or quartered, cut up, in small enough chunks to be carried out. That's what will happen to the leadership we don't do what is right. The whole next chapter talks about that, too. Go up to Lebanon and cry, and lift up your voice in Bashan, and cry from the passages, for all your lovers are destroyed. All the things that we've depended upon to keep ourselves happy and comfortable in this society are going to go away. The comfort of the church, essentially, has gone away. (laughs) There are a lot of confused, upset, frustrated people across the country and around the world. I speak to you in your prosperity. God spoke to us when everything was going well, didn't he? We didn't hear. We denied his word and went on about our lackadaisical Laodicea and me first approach to life. God tore us apart. This has been your manner from your youth that you obeyed not my voice. It's a historical fact from the very beginning that Israelites have gone their own way, done their own thing, and not given God the proper respect, the proper emotion, the proper feeling, the proper obedience. The wind shall eat up all your pastors, and your lovers shall go into captivity. That's what's beginning to happen and will continue to happen until it's done. Surely then shall you be ashamed and confounded for all your wickedness. Are we not as a church overall ashamed and confounded today? Well, it was because of our wickedness. Sure and so. O inhabitant of Lebanon, that make your nest in the cedars, how gracious shall you be when pangs come upon you as the fate of a woman in travail. We sat there in the catbird seat with all our fine buildings, all our big jets, and all of the fineries of worldwide, and thought we were obeying God 
and everything was fine, and we'd go to a place of safety and go to into the kingdom of God, and no trouble would ever come upon us. And now we are suffering shame and confusion. We're broken down and being destroyed. And it's because of our wickedness. We've not turned to God or had not with our whole hearts and lived up to our baptism commitments. People quit keeping the Sabbath properly, don't honor it, travel on it, do all kinds of things they shouldn't do on the Sabbath. Some people watch TV, look at things on the Internet they shouldn't be looking on at on holy time. When when did it become okay to travel on the Sabbath, to infringe upon it by hours or flying airplanes on the Sabbath? It's holy time to be devoted to God, not for us to do our thing, whatever our thing might be. We quit honoring the Sabbath and keeping it as holy to God. Go out to eat on the Sabbath, buying and selling. That became very common in the church. But it breaks scripture. A lot of people quit tithing. That's an easy one to give up. It's one you would like to find a way to get around or to stop. But the Bible clearly teaches it. No one has shown any way whereby that is not today valid. But there are people in the church who've given it up. There are many, many ways our wickedness is showing. And our pain has come upon us as a woman in travail. And it will get worse. As I live, says the Eternal, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck you thence. Now, Kaniah wasn't the signet upon his right hand, but he said, if he were, I would pluck him up anyway. <coughs> Still happened. Now, Kaniah here is a shortened form of Jeconiah, and I think God caused Jeremiah to use that shortened uh, form of his name for the purpose of showing that he would be cut off, that his reign would be cut during its time, shortened or broken. It's also the same name as Jehoiakim. He only reigned three months, and he was cut off in captivity. And even in that three months, he did evil and such a short reign and was cut off. So, even though this evil man might have been the signet, the one who represented God as king of Judah, God said, I cut him off. And he did. And I will give you into the hand of them that seek your life and into the hand of them who, whose face you fear, even into the hand of, king, of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans, and I will cast you out and your mother that bore you into another country where you were not born, and there shall you die. So the king was going to have his name shortened and his life shortened, if you will. And if you go over to Jeremiah 28 and start reading it, it sounds like he's going to live through the captivity and come back. But that was a false prophecy by Hananiah. It was not a prophecy God gave through Jeremiah. And, indeed, it did last the 70 years, not two years, as Hananiah said. And Coniah or Jeconiah did not come back alive, but did die in Babylon. To the land where they desire to return there, they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? 
Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? Is there no reason? Are we despised broken idols, brethren? Did we worship ourselves and our way of life and the American way of life and our TVs and our entertainment and our movies and all the things that Americans have enjoyed and while away our time? Some of them might not be wrong necessarily, but if they take our time from our God, what have they become? They have become idols. An idol can be defined as anything which separates you from God. So even though baseball, per se, might not be a sin, if you spend all your time watching baseball, then you are not devoting time to God. And therefore, baseball becomes an idol to you, a personal God. Now, everybody may not worship the God of baseball. Some might be worshiping the God of sitcoms or the God of basketball or football or you name it. Anything that takes you from prayer, study, meditation, serving others, helping others, sacrificing your life to them is an idol. It doesn't have to be a picture of Jesus on a wall. It doesn't have to be a literal phallic symbol in your living room. It doesn't have to be something carved in the shape of Buddha or Mohammed to be an idol. It's an idol if it takes your time from serving others and serving God. That's what an idol is. Notwithstanding that much of what we might watch and take in is wrong. It is a sin to watch fornication and adultery on television or in a movie. It is a sin to watch murder in a movie. It is a sin to watch homosexual scenes in a movie or on a television set. Because those are things which are abominable in the sight of God, and we are not looking upon sin the way God looks upon sin if we watch it and allow it into our minds and our homes. Now, people go and watch a movie and say, oh, good play. It was full of sin. They've got one out now that probably will be up for Academy Awards, about two queers riding horses in the mountains, I guess. Is anyone going to see that? I'm sure not. They got a, I mean, a, uh, I guess it's a TV series coming out now called Daniel. Supposedly biblically oriented. I suppose some so-called Christians are going to think it's okay to watch that. But it's a story about all kinds of incest, homosexuality, lesbianism, and every hard absolutely satanic sin devised. And it's written by a homosexual. I read about it on the news. But some who are in the church of God, I say in, will probably watch that series and say, oh, look at that sin, as they watch. Kind of like our kids sometimes can, when they're small, can be mesmerized by Christian. By, by Christmas, I mean. And they can drive by looking at all the Christmas lights and say, 
Oh, look at all that paganism. They know it's pagan, but they're still interested by all the bright lights. And we might recognize some things are sin, but we'll go ahead and look at it as we go by in life and judge that we're okay in doing that. Is our standard, brethren, different? Is it higher than the world? Is our standard God's standard? See no evil, hear no evil? He says something in Romans about them doing abominable things and us going, accepting it by watching it and listening to it. Isn't it time we got a little stricter with ourselves instead of getting worse? You know, you hear this message and you hear it, and at first you might make a few changes, and then you begin as a human being to lapse back into some of those same old habits. Let's not let that happen to us. What does God say about returning to your vomit or the sow to her wallow? We better be very, very careful. We're to live our lives with carefulness, not sloppily. Laodiceanism is sloppiness. God is not interested in mediocrity. He wants all speed, redeeming the time, not wasting the time. Wasting time is a sin. Just wasting time that could be put to good use. He blew the church apart for Laodiceanism, that is, lukewarmness. God wants us to be working very diligently. Whatever our hand finds to do, do it with our might. You might say fast instead of half-fast in the way we go about life and Christianity. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not hear. Are we despised, broken idols? Are we pleasant vessels wherein is no pleasure? That is why we were cast out. We've got to make the changes necessary to cause his face to shine on us again. Verse 29. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the eternal. He says earth three times there. For emphasis, he might just as well say, Oh, Daryl, 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 why won't you listen to me? Plug your name in there three times. Why will we not listen to God? Why won't we hear his words and follow them? Why do we continue to ignore? Why do we develop our little pet doctrines and our ways around things and not do what God says to do. We find justifications for almost any behavior we like. Thus says the Eternal, Write you this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. If we as spiritual Jews do not live this Christian way, walk this walk with a wholehearted approach to God and putting him first in our lives, we will not rule 
and the kingdom and the world to mark as kings and priests. It just won't happen. Now, if we do, it will happen. With that, he gets into chapter 23. <clears throat> Woe be to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says he eternal. Now, this particular chapter has been gone to probably as often as any chapter in the prophecies, along with Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1, to berate the ministry. And the ministry certainly has done much wrong. There's been much spiritual abuse and misuse of the people. And people have an attitude and are very skittish as a result of it. And they have no problem applying this chapter to the ministry of the church today. Now, they may have trouble with chapter 22 applying it to the church. They may have chapter 21 or 20 or 43 applying to the church. But they have no problem applying this one to the church. Now, if this one applies to the church, then don't all the others as well, that are written by the same prophet, the same message? Yes, they do. This isn't just referring to the Methodist, Baptist, and Catholic priests and ministers. It's referring to the ministry of the church first, and to them in general. But the church first, as always. All right, let's skip this chapter now and go on to chapter 24. No, I guess i got to take my medicine too, don't I? Don't we all? If I can preach all the other chapters to you, then I guess I better preach this one to me and to the rest of the ministry, wherever they may be. Because God does hold those in positions of leadership highly responsible. So woe be to the pastors, and this too is first to the church not the other religions. If we're going to look at it consistently, we have to look at it consistently. But these prophecies were written first to the church. The Bible was written first to the church. Mr. Armstrong had it right, and I've said it many times, as he did. The Bible was written for the church. And it is. And this part of the Bible was written specifically to the leadership of the church. Therefore, thus says the eternal God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people. What are they feeding them? Weeds, junk, or good food? Good grass. You've scattered my flock. The things that the ministry has done has led to the scattering, because they did misuse and abuse, and so did I. It's part of it. We didn't know it, maybe, at the time. But we did. They've driven them away and have not visited them, not taken care of them. Instead of drawing them in, we've scattered them apart by misusing and abusing. That's why the ministry today is looked down upon by most of the people, most of the time. It's because misuses and abuses were there. It was misuses and abuses of money that led to a lot of changes in attitude about offerings and tithing. And we found excuses and ways not to do those things because of the things that were done to us. Now, that is no justification for doing away with what God says to do, but it's an emotional issue for the most part. You saw misuse and abuse, and therefore 
you found a way, you felt, to justify not doing that. And people are disobeying God, and a lot of it falls at the hands of the ministry who misused and abused that which was given, and should not have. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, says the Eternal. And boy, is it happening. Blocks are being taken away, they're diseased, people are dying spiritually, they're starving to death spiritually, they're not being fed. Even if they go to services and listen, they're not getting anything that shakes them up, changes their lives, and helps them move forward. Now, maybe we get tired of hearing just the opposite. Maybe we get tired of hearing about our sins. But brethren, if we're going to be in the kingdom of God, we have to hear about them. The ministry became lackadaisical and did not cry aloud, spare not, and tell the people their sins. And as a result, the people drifted from God, and because of lack of proper feeding, began to dry up spiritually. That's just the way it happened. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and will bring them again to their foals, and they shall be fruitful and increase. God tells us in Haggai and Zechariah and other places, he's going to gather a lot of it in Isaiah, going to gather a remnant of his people together. We know that. We believe that. We see that in Scripture. It is going to happen. Ten percent of the church today is going to gather and build the latter temple. Ten percent of Israel survives, physical Israel survives. The Holocaust at the end of the age will be gathered and set an example for the rest of the world in the millennium. So it's in two phases. First the church, secondly, physical Israel. I'll gather the room of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. So instead of scattering and dividing, it's going to turn around, both in the church and in the nation, when the millennium arrives. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, says the eternal. This has not yet happened, has it? Because people in the church are still afraid and confused and still lacking. And the, one of the commonest complaints you'll hear is, well, I go to church, but I'm not being fed. I'm not being told what I need to hear. I'm hearing things that may be true, but they don't amount to much, and they're not said with any force. They're not said with any power. They're not said with any way that would make me personally responsible and make me get off my duff and get to work. So I'm drifting. And some people recognize that they're drifting, but they can't go anywhere and be jerked out of the drift. And they're frustrated. And I will set up shepherds over them, which will feed them. Oh, I read that one. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will raise to David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Now, he's talking about the shepherds today, isn't he, in this context? He's talking about the church today, first of all. And he is going to raise up a righteous branch in this end time. Notice over in uh, verse 20 what the time element is. In the latter days, you shall consider it or understand it perfectly. 
This isn't something that comes in the millennium. This is something that comes in the latter days. So God is going to send to the church a righteous branch. Now, you can read about this in quite a few places in the prophecies. You can go back to Zechariah 3, and it talks about Joshua there with the filthy clothes, and how there will be men of signs and wonders involved at some point, and then God will bring forth his righteous branch. And the next chapter talks about Zerubbabel and Joshua together building the temple, Zerubbabel being the one who slayed the foundation, and being the one responsible ultimately for finishing it. And chapter 6 talks about Joshua and then how he will bring forth the righteous branch and the two of them will then sing together on the same page. So it's going to be someone who is a righteous branch, a right bow, if you will, the correct branch that God will produce. And that will happen in this day and age, in the latter days. Now, those leaders, in that sense, are a type of Christ doing his work as high priest and as civil leader. Now, Christ himself will be the righteous branch and king over all the earth when all this prophecy is fulfilled. But there has to be beforehand a proper building of the latter temple of God and people coming from all over the world, wherever they happen to be in the church, from this scattering that is occurring, to build that latter temple. And there will be old men, as Haggai points out, who can compare the former temple with the latter and see that the latter has a much greater glory than the former. So this is talking about something that is happening now that God is destroying the ministry and destroying the flocks as a result of sin. But he will draw it together in these latter days and form a latter temple which will be built in righteousness by a righteous branch, that man being Zerubbabel. And there will be proper judgment and justice in the earth. But that is only a type, then, of what God is going to do on a much wider basis in the millennium when the righteous branch, Jesus Christ, comes back to rule the entire world in glory. Verse 6, in his days, speaking of this righteous branch, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our Righteousness. So that picture or that type in microcosm will expand and the type will become the reality in Christ himself. He is the one who will be called the Lord, our righteousness, not that type which comes before. John the Baptist, in other words, was not the Christ. He is what came before as a type of Christ would become, or would be. So John the Baptist wasn't Christ, but he was a type of Christ, and he prepared the way for Christ. And the righteous branch that prepares the church and leads it into righteousness will also be a type, in that sense, of Christ. But Christ will be the ultimate fulfillment. So I'm not saying someone here 
on this earth is going to be or have this title, the Lord our Righteousness. Now, he will preach the Lord is our righteousness and point to Jesus Christ. But in setting up the right kind of church, he will also be a type of Christ. I look forward to the day that this will occur. And I think that it will happen very shortly now. And we're going to see someone rise up to do exactly what Christ is talking about here through Jeremiah. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that they shall no more say, The Lord lives which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. I believe that the place that this occurs will be in the United States. This is the country where God raised up most of spiritual Judah here in the end. So it will be in our own land. But there will be people who come from afar who also will be involved in it. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the eternal and because of the words of his holiness. So on the one hand, we're shaken inside and we're very distressed. And like a confused drunk stumbling around in the confusion that we see in the church today, and yet on the other hand, we can see in the Scriptures a picture of what is going to be very shortly now, and we can look and see the words of God's holiness and how He will create holiness. That's why it is so important, as the book of Haggai says, that the priests separate the clean from the unclean. That's why I must tell you that it is a sin to watch sin. Because you become a partaker in that sin simply by watching it. Now, do you believe me or do you not? I am doing my level best in my limited capacity to get across to us the difference between the clean and the unclean. Will we listen? Will we do anything about it? Or will we continue to watch and imbibe of sin in music, in TV, in Internet, and whatever other channel we might find it in? <coughs> will we obey God, or will we not? He is setting before us life and death, clean and unclean, vile and precious, we have to delineate one from the other, and we have to make the changes, brethren. Are we going to continue to eat garbage, or will we straighten it out and get rid of the foods of Babylon that are destroying us and bringing an epidemic and a plague of disease? Or will we justify it and say, oh, it's just a physical thing? No, this body that we have is the temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's what it is. And he told us to take care of it in a godly manner. But there were those who will poo-poo that and will continue 
to do the things they have always done. I can only tell you I cannot live your lives for you. But it is my responsibility to separate the clean from the unclean, to tell you what is right and what is wrong. And you can walk out of here and say, well, that's just Daryl's opinion, and you can do that any way you wish. We'll see, won't we? We'll find out. I can lead you to water. I can't make you drink. I can tell you the words of God, and of all the power and strength within me, I will. I'll tell you what sin is and is not, and I will cry aloud and spare not. If you want to hear it, do something about it, wonderful. If you don't, you'll just get in a worse and worse attitude, and you'll wind up leaving, and that's your choice. But you will be told. We must hear the words of His holiness. We must hear and consider these scriptures. For the land is full of adulterers, for because of swearing the land mourns. We have a land full of adultery, brethren, and fornication, and homosexuality. And we watch it as entertainment. Is that entertainment? Or is it vile and abominable? Do we hate sin as God hates it? Or do we watch it as entertainment? For because of swearing, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, and their force is not right. May the force be not with you. May God's Spirit be with you. But we'll watch that garbage. There are people in the church of God who think that watching Harry Potter films and reading those books is just innocent entertainment. It is of the occult. It is from demons that mutter and peep and seek seances. It's abominable. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house have I found their wickedness, says the Eternal. Committing adultery, watching adultery. God says, if our eye sins, put that sin away, not to allow the eye to sin or the hand. <laughs> Is it so much worse to commit a sin as to watch it and look upon it as entertainment? Come on. Wherefore their ways shall be to them as slippery ways in the darkness. The prophet and the priest are doing it too. It's not just the people. It's the prophet and the priest that are profane. The ministry fell into watching sin as entertainment. We too must repent and change that. In my house have I found their wickedness, says the eternal. Wherefore, their ways shall be to them as slippery ways in the darkness. You ever walk in the dark, in the mud, downhill? They shall be driven on and fall therein. For I will bring evil upon them, even the year of their visitation, says the Eternal. The ministry abused, misused, sinned, 
it is coming down upon the ministry. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria, that is, of all Israel. They prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies, deceiving and lying about what they're doing. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none does return from his wickedness. You see, they sin, and they allow sin. And they don't turn people from their wickedness. That is one of the primary things God is upset with the ministry about. The two-facedness, the hypocrisy. And when you're living a life of sin, it's hard to preach to others that they should not sin. And if you do, it's hollow, because you're yourself not doing what you ought to be doing. They are all of them, to me, as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. God views the ministry today as a whole in that light. What did God do to Sodom and Gomorrah? It is time for the ministry to repent, to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. What minister of God would go watch Brokeback Mountain? Oh, but the scenery was nice, up the mountains. Now, how are you going to justify going and watching two queers tear up families? The reviews on that movie, I read something on the Internet about it in the news. The reviews on that movie are that it made people understand some of the feelings of that kind of people and have compassion upon them. Because these two men had families and therefore they couldn't be together all the time doing things which queers do. But those reviews don't mention that what those two selfish men who had weird feelings toward each other doesn't mention what they're doing to their families, their wives, their children. Doesn't cause us to have compassion upon the wives whose, whose husbands are out doing those things with another man. What about those wives' feelings and their children? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets. Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall, bitter. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness gone forth into all the land. God holds the ministry much responsible for what is happening to the people of God today. Thus says the eternal host, hearken not to the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They speak those things which seem good to them, not what God says. I heard an evangelist say, Star Wars is just good, innocent entertainment. No, it's not. It was designed by people who worship demons and who are in the occult. And that's the kind of thing they produce to introduce us to the occult. Weird-looking things that are animated. It is ungodly. 
So the ministry speaks a vision out of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the eternal. They say still to them that despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. So people, to some degree, disregard God or are lukewarm about God or they go on about pursuing the things that entertain them rather than praying and studying and serving and giving and sacrificing their lives. And the ministry tells them, it's all right, honey, you'll have peace anyway. No, it won't happen that way. The peace in the church is already being shattered and it's going to get worse. And they say unto everyone that walks after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. Isn't that basically what the ministry, even yet today, after worldwide has come apart and those splinters that have broken off, allegedly to do righteousness, are still telling people. They're still telling them that they're going to have peace, and as long as you're with me, no evil shall come upon you. It's a false message and a false security that cannot continue. God will wipe that ministry out for telling people that everything is okay as long as they're with them. I am trying to be very careful not to give you that kind of message. I'm trying to give you the message from God, what he actually says. And that is that we need to depart from evil and make a difference between the precious and the vile and the clean and the unclean. And come out of Babylon. Not tell you you're going to live in it and have peace. In other words... I'm trying to repent and change the message from what it used to be and tell you the truth from the Word of God, whether you like it or not. And most will not. How many people listen to this kind of message? Not very many. They don't want to hear it. They would have to change something. It makes them uncomfortable. It makes them feel guilty. Well... How do you get over feeling ashamed and guilty? You change. You repent. You do what God says. You give up those things which are idols and which are sin. And then we'll have peace, but not until. For who has stood in the counsel of the eternal and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? That's what we're trying to do. We're wading through God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, to see what God says. How many places in the church of God today are doing that? How many can you name that are going through God's Word and saying, let's not let any of this fall to the ground. Let's examine it all. Let's see what He says, even if it hurts. Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the eternal has gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall grievous fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. Now, brethren, I'm not trying to make me sound good by saying we will read this and go through it, because I have my own wickedness and my own sins and my own faults and my own attitudes and everything else I have to overcome. So I'm not trying to say I'm better than the rest of the ministry. I'm not. I still have my human failings, just like anyone else. 
But together here today, we are examining God's words to see what we need to change, and specifically me in this chapter. So you may feel railed at, but I'm not going to back off from this. It's at the ministry, and that includes me. I have to make these same changes that I'm telling you you have to make. We don't have a double standard. And in fact, I am judged twice as hard for what I do or don't do because God put me in this position to teach it. He will judge me twice as hard as he will you. Verse 19, Behold, a whirlwind of the eternal has gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind, tornado, if you will. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. It doesn't matter who they are or who they think they are. Because they're in the ministry, they think they can get away with it? No, it doesn't happen that way. The anger of the eternal shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. God's anger will not go away until he does what he has said he is going to do in these chapters. In the latter days you shall consider it or understand it perfectly. Isn't it becoming perfectly clear what God is doing and why he is doing it? We're in the latter days. And you couldn't understand these things clearly until you actually saw them happening. Who would have applied these to the church? I know 40, 50 years ago, they were applying this chapter, the ministry was, to the Methodists, the Baptists, the Catholics, and the Buddhists. That's the way we preached it. We did not preach it to ourselves, about ourselves. We just didn't. And I will bet you that 90 plus percent of the ministry of the Church of God today is still trying to get away from these chapters, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and apply them to other religions. Now the people have seen through a lot of it, and they apply it to the ministry. But how many of the leaders and the ministers of all the branches of the church of God that you know today will stand before the church and say, they must repent. I don't think you'll hear it much. They probably just come. If they do have some cognition that this is talking about the church ministry, they don't preach it. They ignore it. They avoid it. They preach from some other passage somewhere, their passage for the day. But it's in here, and it's in order, and the ministry had better look at it, because they are held more responsible than the people. And when I say they, I mean we. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they preached or prophesied. God didn't tell them the things they're saying. God didn't show them those things. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way. Now, you may resist some of the things that I'm preaching we need to turn and change. 
But isn't the American way an evil way? And isn't the way the church came to be an evil way? God would not be doing this to us if we were not living in an evil way. We weren't going out and doing physically some of the things that the world is doing, perhaps. Some of us, some of us were. But were we allowing it in our homes and going out to watch it in movie houses? What's the difference? If it's happening in your mind, it's happening. No, the ministry isn't telling people to turn from their evil way. Am I a God at hand, says the Eternal, and not a God far off? Are you close to me? Do you understand me? Do you know me? Or am I just some, some one way away? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Can you do things when no human beings are looking and think you're hiding it from God? says the Eternal. Do not I fill heaven and earth, says the Eternal. He's omniscient and omnipresent. He's everywhere. He sees everything. He knows what's going on. He reads your innermost thoughts. How comforting is that? To know that what you allow your mind to think sometimes, God knows. He considers our heart. He weighs what's going on in our heads. I have heard what the prophets said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. They've made up what they're saying. They're not getting out of here. You know, most, most of the churches today only have one scripture they believe in. Go and preach this gospel around the world as a witness, and the end shall come. That's the main focus. It's the main verse. And they're ignoring these major bodies of Scripture back here, which say that they are not accomplishing what God wants. They have this dream, this fantasy, this idea in their minds of what they ought to be doing. God didn't send those prophets, but they ran anyway, because they are not being honest with what is going on in the church today. They think their little group is A-OK, and that they are A-OK. You see, if they are willing to tell the people that if you just stay in my group, everything will be fine, that you're OK, what they're saying is, I am OK. Right? If you're OK by following me, then I am OK. And that is self-righteousness. And vanity and ego. God did not send that kind of attitude. He just didn't. His ministry, his prophets, his witnesses in the end <coughs> will come in humility and sackcloth. They will recognize their own faults, their own weaknesses, and they will be have been humbled to the point that they have the attitude of sackcloth and ashes. Not, I am God's apostle, I am God's evangelist, I am God's gift to mankind. 
I'm God's gift to the church. I'm the only one. No. So much more, the ministry needs to get rid of its dreams and vanities and fantasies. And we all need to recognize our faults. Which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. They put themselves forward so much and preach about themselves and their great work to the point that we forget about God. The prophet that has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Eternal. Now there are dreams that God is going to cause in the end time. Read Joel 2, read Acts 2. And there are dreams, there are visions that have and will come from God. But those have to stand the test of Scripture. If the vision or the dream does not fit Scripture, it is a false dream from a false source. It has to fit Scripture. Preaching from dreams is not the thing to do. Even though there are proper dreams, but there are also vain, egocentric dreams and fantasies that people dream up on their own or that might even come from Satan. We must be very careful with them. There are dreams which come from false sources and dreams which come from God. And the test is the Word of God and whether those dreams fit the Word of God. So, His Word is what counts. And any dream or vision that comes from God is going to fit Scripture and is going to help us understand Scripture better. Because Scripture is the final word, not someone's dream. Anyone's dream. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the eternal. The wheat is in the Word of God. Is not my word like as a fire, says the eternal, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Our dreams are nothing unless they fit the word of God because it is like a fire and a hammer. So anything anybody says they have dreamed, it better fit Scripture. Otherwise, it came from a wrong source or from no source, just their own vanity and ego. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Eternal, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor, Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Eternal, and use their tongues and say, He says. They dream up their own idea of what ought to be done and what should be done at the moment, rather than reading all the scriptures and seeing what God says needs to be done. Herbert Armstrong told the ministry what God actually tells us in scripture. That is, he had done his job of calling, Get the Church Ready. Prepare the bride. And yet most ministries today are not doing that. They are trying to finish the work of Herbert Armstrong, who just didn't get the job done. So it's up to them to do it. And they are ignoring the vast majority of Scripture, which tells us why things are as things are today. Therefore, behold, I am against the preachers, says the Eternal, that steal my words, everyone, from his neighbor, and use their tongue, saying, God says. And God doesn't say that at all. 
God doesn't tell us peace, peace. He tells us famine, pestilence, and the sword. And captivity. Spiritually and ultimately physically in our people. We hold out against them the prophesied false dreams. Not true dreams, but false dreams. There are true dreams from God. Acts 2, Joel 2. And do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their likeness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, says the Eternal. They took it lightly, didn't take it seriously. Don't take the words of God seriously. We'd better take the words of Jeremiah seriously, not lightly, and pass over them and blame them on someone else. Verse 33, And when this people or the prophet or a priest shall ask you, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? You shall then say to them, What burden? I will even forsake you, says the Eternal. They say it's the burden of the Lord. That's what does God say? As for the prophet and the priest and the people that shall say the burden of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his house. They're saying this came from God. Now, does that make my message wrong when I'm saying what we are experiencing in this scattering is from God? Let's read on. Thus shall you say everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, What has the Lord answered? And what has the Lord spoken? And the burden of the Lord shall you mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden, for you have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts, our God. The burden isn't from God. The burden is from us. It's cause and effect. It's our sins which brought this scattering upon us. It isn't the burden of God upon us. It is a burden that came upon us because we created it, and God is therefore smashing us for disobeying Him. So the burden really was caused by us, not by God. He doesn't want to hear us saying, It's all your fault, Lord. There are people who blame God for their troubles. No, those troubles didn't come from God. They came from the person. Accepted of God. Well, we had better be lovable and acceptable then. You want to be loved and accepted by people? Be lovable and acceptable, and they will love you and accept you. But blame them for your problems? Blame God? No way. It's a burden we have brought upon ourselves. We've perverted the words of the living God. And the ministry is first and foremost in having done that. And given them a false hope of security when it was not there. I'm telling you, that peace and security will only come if you obey the words of God and get rid of idols. And I must do the same. Thus shall you say to the prophets, What has the eternal answered you, and what has the eternal spoken? But since you say the burden of the Lord, therefore this, thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the burden of the Lord, and I have sent to you, saying, you shall not say the burden of the Lord, therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you, and I will forsake you, and the city that I gave you and your fathers and cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. And it is coming on the ministry today because they have denied the word of God. So the burden that has hit us is not of God's making, 
it's of our making. And we, as a ministry, must repent and preach to you the clean from the unclean and the precious from the vile and cry aloud and spare not. That is my job. That is what God has told me to do. That's why I do it this way.